Welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can together live lives that unleash a little bit more love and a little bit more courage into our daily living. Not just in the big ways that seem out of reach for a lot of us, but in the small ways that can spiral out to make big changes if only we let them unfold and unravel. I am Reverend Sean, and I am here with my colleague, Reverend Elaine. Hey, Elaine. Hey, Sean. How are you doing right now? We're in this series about our best lives. Have Have you been living your best life recently? I feel like this morning I am living my best life. I'm talking to you here from our Foothills Church building, where both of my kids are in an awesome spring break camp. And registration just opened for summer camps here at church for them. And it's just so sweet to see them here with friends having fun it's i don't know we're all living our foothills life this morning it's good stuff i love that i i will say that this time change we just went through the spring forward oh. time change that is not me living my best life when i went downstairs and was eating my cereal and i looked up at the oven clock that hadn't changed and it was 5 25 and i was already needing to be out the door on the way to church on sunday i was like you know what this is not necessarily my best life. Yeah, that's just a little ouch. So, Sean, thinking about this topic of uh, your best life that we're on right now, you had a really interesting take on this this Sunday, and I'm looking forward to hearing your sermon on this podcast. Can you just tell our folks listening today, what aspect of your best life were you digging into? Last week, we explored how a lot of the stories in our society about our best lives are things that we have to do, that we have to improve, that there's these ways of being that like look good on the outside, but they have to be something that we achieve. One of the counterpoints to that message is how our best life is not about maximizing the goodness in our life, but is about how we approach and receive what life gives us. Because there's so much in life that we can't control. There's so much that we can't understand. And so how we can approach that that the, the, the waves of life that come crashing towards us, I think is one of the things that is within our control and can help us figure uh, help us move towards a life that is that, that has some, that, that has what the Taoists would call kind of an equanimity and, and a happiness. And that we do that not by actually doing or achieving or mastering, but actually by not doing of allowing ourselves to join flow and, and, do this complicated and yet really simple thing that, that in Taoism they call Wu Wei, which is effortless action. And so that's what we're kind of diving into today. Yeah, I love that it's this message of you have agency, but it might not be what you're imagining. Yeah, and, and it's not, it's agency to a point. And I feel like a lot of the messages around your best life are trying to tell you, you can have control. Because it's so seductive, because we want it. We want control. We want understanding. As Parker Palmer talks about, those solutions and those quick fixes that give us understanding or those feelings of control, a lot of them, it doesn't pan out because it doesn't actually gel with the reality of life, which is mystery and unknowing and uncontrollability. And so we develop all of these systems, all of these behaviors, all of these practices to like, steal ourselves and and be able to experience life in a certain way, but they don't actually work because they don't actually allow us to approach life with the humility 
to understand that we are not going to have control and that we are not going to be able to just do what we want or understand everything. Absolutely. Well, let's get into your sermon now. And then when we come back, I have some big questions for you. Your sermon brought up a lot of inspiration for me, and there's a lot of things I want to ask you. You know, when you agree to do something, but the second you start doing it, you instantly regret it. That's the experience I had every time I agreed to go with my father to his martial arts practice. After donning my white uniform, bowing my way onto the mat, I would come face to face with my exercise partner, Igor. It was always Igor. No matter if I attended on Saturday morning or Wednesday afternoon, I somehow always got paired up with this 220-pound, 5'10 brick house of an Eastern European man who seemingly enjoyed roughly throwing his friend's son around the mat. It was kind of a joke how often it happened. And you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 was grandma's practicing Tai Chi in the park and 10 is MMA Mortal Kombat, let's just say that Igor didn't spend much time with grandma. And so I would hit the mat hard every time looking up, slightly dazed, cursing my decision to attend yet again. That being said, this wasn't all Igor's fault. The form of martial arts that my dad practices, Aikido, is strictly defensive, and the techniques taught focus on moving with the momentum of your attacker, never meeting force with force, blending with the movements coming towards you, using your center of gravity as a lever, to direct the other's own momentum to get them off balance. Aikido is the type of art where, as Yoda would say, size matters not. Where technique and calm beats muscle and strength every day. You know, when you watch videos of Aikido masters practice, even when they're being attacked by multiple people from all different directions, they stand as if in the eye of a hurricane calm, frenetic movement all around them, but they remain groundless, effortlessly flowing with each of attack, dispatching their attackers back into the roiling maelstrom from which they came. The aggression of the attackers is met with stillness. The frenetic flurries of punches and strikes is met with simple moves. Someone comes to punch you, you simply step aside and direct them to the ground. The stillness and simplicity of the masters is no accident. If you're furiously moving, you cannot know where your body and theirs will intersect. If you're rigid and tense, you cannot absorb the energy coming towards you with grace or with ease. It is through stillness that you find leverage and through leverage where you find your power. Sometimes you have to stop making waves to notice where the current might take you. So when I say it wasn't all Igor's fault, I mean it. He was simply redirecting my own force back onto me. Because energy is neither created nor destroyed, Igor was the world's most thermodynamically observant sparring partner. Which of course was a deep solace to me every time I hit the mat hard, trust me. This practice or philosophy of 
not meeting force with force, but effortlessly moving with the momentum of the moment has its deep roots in East Asian philosophy and religious traditions. One such being Taoism. Taoism has its roots in China, and it began around the 3rd or 4th century BCE. And it called this way of being, of flowing with the movements of the world, Wu Wei. Now, Wu Wei has many different translations, and as much as with much of Taoism, it embraces paradox to a great degree. Wu Wei is acting without acting. Wu Wei is effortless action. Wu Wei is acting without meddling or interfering. Or how I like to think about it, Wu Wei is a baby, exploring the world with their body, not trying, just doing. Wu Wei is when you forget yourself in the dance with your partner. Wu Wei is when you let go of trying to say the right thing and the perfect words spring to your mouth. Wu Wei is when you say yes to the pull of another and find yourself in a beautiful moment. Wu Wei is Luke Skywalker, bearing down the Death Star trench run, the voice of Obi-Wan ringing out, use the force, let go. And he doesn't aim, he simply pulls the trigger, sending a proton torpedo into the heart of the Death Star, not trying, effortless action. Perhaps all that makes complete sense to you. But if not, this parable might help. It comes from Cheng Sa, the 4th century thinker, credited with writing one of the foundational texts of Taoism. And it goes something like this. At the gorge of Lu, the great waterfall plunges thousands of feet, its spray visible for miles. In the churning water below, no living creature can be seen. One day, Confucius was standing at a distance from the pool's edge when he saw an old man being tossed about in the turbulent current. He called to his disciples, and together they ran to the rescue of the victim. But the old man had climbed out onto the bank and was walking along, singing to himself when they got there. Confucius hurried up to him. You would have to be a ghost to survive that, he said. But you seem to be a man. What secret power do you have? Nothing special, the old man replied. I, begin, I began to learn while I was young and grew up practicing it, and now I am certain that I can do it. I simply go down with the water and come up with the water. I follow it and forget myself, and I survive because I don't struggle against the water's superior power. That's all. Wu Wei. Effortless action. How often do we fight against the currents, only to be left exhausted? Trying to change other people trying in our feeble attempts to master and understand life, to feel the illusion of control. This is not to say that control or understanding exists outside of our grasp, but that as humans, we have this predilection to not accept the truth of what is, that most of life we will not understand, and that most of life we will not be able to control. How we choose to live with these realities, be it denial or embrace, will come to define our lives more than the content of what life serves up to meet us. 
It is not how, what is the content of our lives, but rather how we meet it that maybe defines the good life. Of course, this does not mean that we are to meet life with passivity, merely going with the flow. As Parker Palmer, the Quaker teacher, reflects, Taoism counsels us to live our lives like water, but this does not mean going with the flow passively. Taoism is all about nonviolent action. It invites us to float quietly but persistently around obstacles that stand between us and the common good, wearing them down as a river erodes a boulder. He continues, I think Taoism or I don't think that Taoism or any other wisdom tradition has the whole answer to living well. Sometimes we must swim upstream against cruelty, injustice, and truth, but rightly understood, Taoism is an important corrective to the Western obsession with force, even violence, as the way to get things done, which often results in little more than an escalation of violence. As the Tao Te Ching counsels, the best are like water. They benefit all and do not compete, and they dwell in the lowly spots that everyone else scorns. When I was in search looking for a job six years ago, it was my first time trying to get a job as a minister out of seminary. And the first round of interviews was rough. It seemed that most churches I was interested in serving were not interested in even talking to a recent seminary grad. They wanted someone with experience. It was disheartening. I felt that I had something to offer, but no one was seeming to give me the chance. But I refused to accept the reality that things were not looking so good. And with each passing week, not hearing back or hearing that I wouldn't get an interview, my spirits were sinking lower and lower. I had spent years training for this moment, and it seemed that it wouldn't amount to anything, and I was sort of crushed. As Reverend Dr. Carl Gregg, a UU minister, reflects, the Taoist worldview reminds us that all of us as humans are merely one part of a massive whole that is the cosmos. That we humans are not special in the grand scheme of things. So that we should be cautious over interpreting what happens to us as either bad or good in any sort of ultimate perspective. From the Taoist point of view, all that happens is part of a complex, intricate, larger whole, and that we may or may not have the capacity from our finite human perspective to comprehend why things happen to us. As it says in chapter 58 of the Tao Te Ching, it is upon bad luck that good luck depends. It is upon good luck that bad luck depends. Who knows where it ends? In our Western and white-dominated culture, the myth of living your best life seems like something you have to achieve, have to fight for. And if you do, you will experience only the best parts of life, the good parts. But the Taoist perspective would, as Benjamin Hoff writes, laugh at this idea that somehow certain people could absent themselves from the nature of the universe, which is made up of both life and death, pain and pleasure, suffering and ease. Instead, Taoists focus on how to appreciate, learn from, and work with whatever happens in life. To appreciate, to learn, to work with, not fight against, trailblaze, achieve, master, or understand. 
And when we're able to do such a thing, the natural result of this harmonious way of living is happiness. There is no best life. There is only life. And it is when we find ourselves resisting the very nature of life itself, be it the natural order or our inner nature, that we stumble into the deepest of sufferings. Back to my job search. One afternoon, there was this turning point. Not because I got the call to come to Foothills. That would come much later. I had started this new hobby of making tofu from scratch, and my husband and I were in our small Boston apartment, and we finally started to have the conversation, what would we do if I didn't find a job? And it started as a joke. I said something like, maybe I'll just open a tofu business. So my husband looked, for me, looked at me and said, you can be Reverend Tofu. And so the idea was born. And while it was never more than a fantasy, it was a fantasy that grounded me in the truth of what was. And I stopped fighting against denying what was happening. I didn't have control. I didn't know what would happen. But I could still find a way to do what I loved, albeit in a different way with a different form. Sometimes you have to stop making waves to notice where the current might take you. Parker Palmer, who I referenced earlier, spoke about his experience with depression and how this Taoist perspective helped him. Now, Parker is first to admit that his experience with depression was his own. And so if you or someone you love lives with depression, know that this isn't prescriptive of what you should do or they should do, but rather simply what Palmer found for himself. Palmer had come from a long line of educators, and so he felt destined to follow in their footsteps. But as he entered adulthood and did just that, he was struck with these deep bouts of depression. Despite a successful career, a loving family and friends, he found himself in the dark woods of clinical depression, what he described as a total eclipse of light and hope. Wrestling about the experience years later, he said, depression demands that we reject simplistic answers, both religious or scientific, and learn to embrace mystery, something our culture resists. Mystery surrounds every deep experience of the human heart, but our culture wants to turn mysteries into puzzles to be explained or problems to be solved because maintaining the illusion that we can straighten things out makes us feel powerful. Yet mysteries never yield to solutions or fixes. And when we pretend that they do, life becomes not only more banal, but also more hopeless because the fixes never work. While working with a counselor, he found a way to embrace the mystery of his depression without trying to fix it, but allowed him to still reclaim his life. And it started with a question from his therapist. You seem to look upon depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you, his therapist said. Do you think you could see it instead as the hand of a friend pressing you down to ground on which it is safe to stand? At first, Parker found the image in the midst of all his suffering impossibly romantic and even insulting. But it started to work on him. 
He realized that he had been living a life outside of his inner calling, that he felt caught in the world of ideas about God rather than cultivating a relationship with God. That he said, quote, my inflated ego had caused me to think more of myself than was warranted in order to mask the fear that I was less than I should have been. Depression was indeed the hand of a friend trying to press me down to ground on which it was safe to stand, the ground of my own truth, my own nature with his complex mix of limits and gifts, liabilities and assets, darkness and light. His depression was his true self trying to get his attention, saying after shouts and taps, stones and sticks had failed to do the trick, there was only one thing left to do, drop the nuclear bomb of depression. Not with the intent to kill, but as a last-ditch effort to get me to turn and answer the simple question, what do you want? Parker was able to sit with his depression not as something to be fixed or an enemy to be fought against, but as a friend. Embracing the mystery of depression, he wrote, didn't mean passivity or resignation. It meant moving into the field of forces that seem alien, but is in fact one of our deepest, but is in fact one's deepest self. It meant waiting, watching, listening, suffering, and gathering whatever self-knowledge one can, and then making choices based on that knowledge, no matter how difficult. One begins the slow walk back to health by choosing each day things that enliven one's selfhood and resist things that don't. It was through not fighting but moving with that he was able to walk out of the dark woods of depression to continue his life's journey. Wu Wei A few years ago, I was at the ocean. And there was this kid, maybe five or six, who was standing on the shoreline. His shins in the water, his crouch strong and low. Each time a wave would come towards him, he would put his arms together and karate chop the wave. He was having a great time. And he did this for almost an hour. Each time a wave would build, he would ready himself and he would karate chop it. But of course, the waves kept coming. There was nothing he could do to stop the next wave, no matter how strong he was, no matter how accurate his timing. He could even go to school as an engineer and come back. And there would be nothing he could do to stop the waves from crashing their way onto the shore. But just down the beach, there was a group of surfers paddling out. They would float on their bellies, waiting for the right moment in which they would speed themselves up and catch a wave and surf all the way down the beach, going further and faster than they could under their own propulsion, moving with the wave rather than against it. Our work is hard work. It's to notice when we are trying to karate chop and fight against the reality of what is, and to wonder how we could instead harness the power of the water to go further and faster than we ever could imagine. If only we moved in harmony with our inner, with our inner nature, 
and with the natural order of life itself. And blessed be. Sean, I loved your sermon. And I'm sitting here moving with, sitting with this image of the waves moving in and out and thinking about how we can move with life's waves. And uh, there's a piece of your sermon that's really uh, kind of sticking with me and prompting some questions, which is this piece around how the message could be misconstrued. The message could be misconstrued and one could just surrender to the rhythms of dominant culture or just kind of um, say whatever and flop around in life instead of actually genuinely moving with flow. And so if you find yourself at a choice point and you're trying to figure out, am I giving up? Um, and giving away my agency, or am I going with the flow in a true Wu Wei style? How do you know the difference? I think it's such a great question, and and that tension I, I felt the whole way through as I was preaching and I was writing this because there is a danger, you know, especially in a in a church setting when someone up at the front or on a podcast. I feel like podcasts are like the new churches. Everyone has like the church of the podcast they go to, but that's another rant. There's a real danger to have a message that says maybe on the surface, hey, just just like go with the flow. Whatever comes, don't resist it. Just just move with the ways that the world is going and you'll you'll achieve happiness. It's like the complete opposite of the like master your life message. It's the like don't resist anything and just be passive. And, and I, there's a real danger in that, right? Because in the kind of Taoist cosmology, there's, there's a difference between the, the social order and the natural order. So the, the social order is the, the human construction of relatedness, the, the ways that humans have created society and the ways to interact. The natural order is how the universe is structured. How, how life itself moves in its own cycles and rhythms. And it is the moving with the natural order, which is the, the capital and nature um, of the universe that this Wu Wei is connected to. It's not connected to the social order part of it. And that's why there's this real focus on Taoism of, of going out into the natural world and finding stillness and it is through that practice of finding stillness and observing the natural world that you can actually get glimpses of what is the natural order of things. Mm. And yet, yeah, that is a, it's a very different and a much more opaque flow to be connecting to because it's something that isn't just if something hard or something forceful is coming towards you, move with it. It's actually about like the deeper currents of life itself. And so how do we, how do we navigate that? And I think the, the Parker Palmer's experience actually can help us a little bit with this. I think the first thing is to figure out stillness in our lives, to have spaces for stillness, to disconnect from information, to disconnect from input, to find stillness helps us notice, um, notice both the, the world around us in a different way and also ourselves. Because that's the other part of this is that Taoism talks a lot about an inner nature and that the flow that we're moving with is not just 
the, the, the outside natural order, but also the natural order that is embodied within us because we are part of the cosmos. And so there are ways of being that when we enact them, feel aligned to our, our inner selves, our, our truest natures. And then there's actions that aren't. And, you know, P Palmer talked about in Let Your Life Speak about how a lot of the pain at the beginning of his road to depression was coming from the way that he was living outside of his truths, that he was living for other people. He was living for a society that said that, that fame and professional excellence was the path that, that the, the intellectual world was more important than his own heart world. And that as he was living that, he was experiencing this tragic gap between who he was inside and how he was living. And that was really painful. And I think that is a, a tool that we can use to start to notice, all right, when are we living in a way that is moving with a flow that is, that is truly effortless versus just moving with a flow that actually costs us a lot. Because if we're moving with a flow that asks us to compromise who we are, if we're moving with a flow that asks us to compromise the integrity of other beings, chances are we're moving with a flow of society and not with a flow of this, this kind of cosmic nature that, that they would talk about in Taoism. It makes me wonder, when you're working hard, you know, sometimes you have to work hard to do something important or you have to do something scary or get outside your comfort zone and it's really uncomfortable or maybe even feels painful. In those moments, how do you know if you're living in your integrity or not? What would you look for, Sean? On, on Sunday, we had a conversation about parts of this in the 10 o'clock. And one of the groups, as they were reflecting on it, said something really interesting. So at the end of the message, I talked about, you know, the, the kid karate chopping the wave versus the surfers. Mm -hmm. Someone offered up, you know, those surfers, it, it takes a lot of work to get to the place of effortlessness, right? It takes a lot. I mean, I've tried surfing. I don't know if you've tried surfing. Like I, I took a yeah, surfing I've lesson and I don't think I surfed, <laughs> right? It was a lot of work to, to figure out how to move on the board, to, to read the movements of the, the ocean, to time it so you actually get in the right moment and the right angle. I mean, it's a lot of work. And I think that's a good reminder for us that that the effortlessness that is that is connected to this Wu Wei is not no effort being expended whatsoever, but it is attuning ourselves so that when we are in a moment that we can move with it. And so that's I think a lot of times where the the pain um, and the struggle comes. At least my experience of some of the hardest moments of my life that the pain and the struggle has generally been before the moment, the defining moment. It's the leading up. It's the convincing myself to say the thing I need to say, to do the thing that needs to be done, to receive the thing that needs to be received. I generally found that once I'm in the moment, if I can ground myself and, and, and kind of just be in that space, it's, uh, less, it's less terrible than I imagined. And I think it's because of that work to get to that moment and to convince myself to actually be there. The, the, the second piece of this is how do we know is I'll ask you a question when you are in a, let's say a social situation and you're feeling inauthentic, 
like you're, you're feeling like you're not connecting to the, the, the Elaine that's inside. What happens in your body? Oh, I, my stomach clenches. Do you notice anything in your voice? My voice probably takes on a higher register. You know, I can think of a time when I felt like someone was being unkind, but I also felt like I, I could feel myself trying to protect their fragile ego by going along with it. And I think, yeah, that feels like a time when I was out of integrity with myself. What happened the longer you went through that experience for you? Like the longer you were trying to protect the ego of another person? I just felt kind of disgusted with myself. I felt gross, which I know is maybe not like a technical somatic term, um, but I just couldn't tolerate it anymore. So I needed to either say something true or stop doing the thing. You know, change the subject to go right, somewhere right. else. Because I, I noticed that within myself is that, yeah, if I'm in a situation and I'm kind of outside of my integrity, I, I do notice my voice go higher. I notice uh, a lot of kind of anxiety within my my chest and like a little bit of like a dissociative experience of like, who is this person that I am in this moment? <laughs> like there's a little bit of this disconnect. It, that doesn't mean that I necessarily can rectify that. A lot of times I use some sort of coping mechanism or extricate myself from the situation like you were nodding towards. But I think those sort of somatic clues are 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 exactly that, are clues for us to notice. Okay, is this me just being flexible and moving with the reality of life that is that I don't have control and don't have complete understanding? Or is this me compromising? Is this me giving in or is this me surrendering? And I think that intuitive difference, like I think we know it within us, even if it's hard to always intellectualize in the moment. Yeah, I think I also fast forward I think about other times that I've had a similar experience and what the likely outcome will be too. So I think about like uh, the pain involved in the creative process, you know, trying to create something can be really hard and uncomfortable, but I'm pretty sure that when I, I know that when I get to the end, I'll feel a sense of relief. But being in that conversation where I'm compromising my integrity or watch somebody, watching somebody behave badly, if I let that continue, I'm just going to feel ashamed and yucky at the So thinking about experiences of pain and what to do in those moments, I wanted to shift our conversation slightly towards experiences of people who are being hurt, people who are being oppressed, people who are experiencing someone else's power being thrust over them. And what does it mean to embrace Wu Wei in those scenarios where your life or well-being is being threatened or your loved ones are being threatened? I mean, where the stakes are very high. It's such a good question. And and I, you know, with all of this, I'm I'm not an expert in this. And I've been thinking a lot about the current conflict in Ukraine and, and the citizens of Mariupol, this, this city in southern Ukraine that's been occupied by Russia, like they've defeated, like the, the active fighting within Mariupol is, is, has ended. And yet the people are protesting, are coming out against the occupation. 
in demanding that the mayor be reinstated and and released. And then, you know, in other parts of the country, there's active fighting, right? And so this question for me has come up, like, what are the ways that we, that we deal with exactly what you're saying when, when the, the force of others, be it another person or another entity or group is being Im imposed upon us? How do we respond in a way that that is both that effortless action, but also doesn't add more violence to a situation. And I'm not going to say, I, I can't get into the complexities of nonviolent versus violent action in terms of the ethics and morality of it. That's, that's for another day. But I think there is an opportunity in Taoism to, to imagine that there is a middle way in between meaning force with force and being passive and that there's maybe a creative third option in how to respond like that, that image of how water wears down a rock over time. I mean, the biggest, the Grand Canyon was weathered by water. It is, you know, a stunning, you know, exercise in endurance. And so what is that third way that we can find in our lives if we're, if we are feeling that? And it, it makes me think about this book that I love from the theologian Walter Wink. It's called Jesus and Nonviolence. So we're going to connect Taoism to, to Jesus, which I think is a fun, a, a fun connection. And so Walter Wink, he's a, a scholar looking at the New Testament and especially the way that the Bible has been used to support systems of power and oppression and how actually if we read the Bible in its cultural context, we can understand what actually is going on for the people and how it can be a really a revolutionary message for people who are, are being oppressed. He in the book talks about this really interesting translation in the King James Bible in which this Greek word is, is translated as resist not evil essentially saying like when there's evil in the world don't resist it and you can imagine if you're a you know a king in power that sounds like a really great translation but he goes into the 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 original greek and the that specific word doesn't mean all forms of resistance what it really means is don't mount an insurrection, a violent insurrection against evil. Mm. And instead find a different way. And there's this passage in Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 41, which you might have heard, but I want to share it with you. And then I want to take one little part of it and talk about what Wink says about it, because I think it's really interesting. So the, the passage is, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. So that's the do not resist. But we can think about that as do not violently resist an evildoer. But if anyone uh -huh. strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Like what? And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. And so reading this in English, you think that Jesus is saying, Hey, when there's evil, just go along with it. When someone hits you, let them hit right. you again. When someone takes something from you, give them more. You know, when someone's forcing you to go a mile, go, go the extra mile. That seems like passivity. 
to the point of self-mutilation almost. But what Wink does is he goes into the cultural context of each of these. Um, and I want to take the second one about the cloak. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. So to, to understand what he's saying in this, we have to understand two things. The first is that the, the inner cloak that he's talking about is actually kind of like saying your, your underwear. So it's saying if someone's like trying to take your, your, your coat, your jacket, we'll give them your underwear as well. So mm -hmm. that's, that's weird, right? You're basically having <laughs> someone, you're saying, hey, I'm going to give you like all my clothes. And what would happen, you know, if someone's suing you in a court, I mean, there's been some dispute. And if they, they would take it on the spot, right? Because there's no bank accounts to lean. I mean, they just, they would just take it. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage is like, essentially get naked. If someone's trying to take some, take your coat, get completely naked. Yeah. Why would he say that, Sean? Jesus is not necessarily a nudist. In first century in Palestine, it's a, it's a very honor-based, shame-based culture. And so there are things that you do and there are things you don't do. And the things you don't do bring shame upon you. And nakedness was shameful, but not in the way that you might think. So nakedness was shameful, not on the person who was naked, but on the person viewing the person who is naked. So if you were in a, in a court and some powerful person is suing you because that's usually what happens and they're trying to take your coat and you just give them everything and you're suddenly naked in the courtroom, that person who is trying to take something from you suddenly is experiencing shame because they have to look upon you in your naked state. And what mm -hmm. Wink talks about is how in that moment, you're reclaiming a sense of power, right? You're saying, hey, you can take my coat, you can take my underwear, and I'll stand here naked. And you can't claim the dignity that is mine. The shameful extraction of wealth from the poor, which is being perpetrated in this moment. I'm laying, laying it bare of what it actually is. Right, that third way of nonviolent right. resistance. And so you're, this is what he says. Suddenly you've turned the tables. You as a poor person had no hope of winning the trial. The law was entirely in the other person's favor, but you refused to be humiliated. And at the same time, you've registered a stunning protest against a system that spawned your debt because the debt that poor people had was because of the system. Like it wasn't that they were ringing up Amazon. You have said in effect, you want my robe here, take everything. Now you've got all that I have except my body. Is that what you'll take next? And you might think that this is like just like a, a, a funny story, but actually like nakedness has been used by oppressed peoples to, to great effect. And, and one of the places that it, it is in apartheid era, South Africa, this black shanty town that was going to be destroyed by the, the white government. Uh, Wink tells this story. One day after most of the men and women had left for work, the army arrived with their bulldozers. The, so the soldiers announced the few women that were there. They had five minutes to gather their things and the bulldozers would commence their work. The women, perhaps sensing the prudity of the farm boys who largely made up the army, stood in front of their bulldozers, stripped off all their clothes, and the army fled. They found their power to change the dynamic of like, hey, you want this? Take it all. And then what does that force us to do? That's right. And it was, was not violent and it was not giving in. It was a third way. And it was moving with the energy that was created in that space to bring it back to the Wu Wei 
and it, there's a creativity, I think, in it that, you know, nonviolence is the harder path. Gandhi talked about this. If you don't think you can do nonviolence, it's better to be violent than it is to be passive, is what Gandhi said. But uh -huh. nonviolence is the harder path because you have to figure out a creativity that isn't going to add more destruction, more pain, and offers a way in which the world as it should be can be recognized, right? That our humanity, um, the humanity of the person that might oppress us can be recognized for what it truly is. And then that new way kind of is sparked. I wonder how do we keep that creativity alive in our world filled with commercialism and stark individuality and images of violence and Netflix, you know, how do we keep that creative spark alive to that will enable us to think of the third way that will be strong and effective? I, I would love to hear what you think. The, the, I mean, no, oh, go ahead. Just, well, you have a moment to, because I put you on the spot there. You asked a question thinking I would answer, and here I am asking you. Um, <laughs> the thing that comes to mind is the, the power of the Tao Te Ching that talks about how, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the basis of bad luck is good luck and the basis of good luck is bad luck. And, it, it, and, and when does that, that cycle? I think that view of the world that says, we don't know how all the things are going to connect. We don't know how the effects of this action is going to take on the next action. For me, that invites an invitation to have a little bit of spaciousness that says, I don't know. And that means that I maybe don't need to act right now. That I can mm -hmm. have a breath, have a moment to find center, to find that, that inner trueness and, and act from there. That's my, that's my best guess is that that little bit of spaciousness can invoke a sense of creativity and then telling the stories of when it happens. Yeah, that's where I was going to. I love the practice of holding that space for not knowing and getting curious about how things might unfold or the power of a small gesture. And I think telling the stories of creative resistance is so important. And I think that's something that is ours to do here in a faith community is to remind each other over and over again that, you know, there are more <laughs> of life's mystery and life's power and power to generate and regenerate love and courage. And that you know, we're here to do it together. That if you're wondering if you have your people to get creative with, just stick around. Keep showing up. This is such a fun topic because we're pinging between a Quaker and Jesus and, and Taoism and back and forth. But it makes me think of the Quaker practice of clearness committees and it, where you have a group of people who sit with you as you're struggling with something and simply listen and ask open questions to you to help you arrive 
at, at maybe a next step or an, an insight or something. And it, it is a trust that there is enough wisdom within us to figure out what that next step is, if only we had the space for it. And that's one of the beautiful things about religious communities is that we can be that for each other and we can be that counter voice to the world that says, you know, you must figure everything out. If you haven't, you're behind. You must do everything now. If you don't, everything will be lost. Is to kind of take that long view to say, you know, with humility, we don't know how these stories are going to end, but we know this isn't the end of them. And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do together? That's right. Well, Sean, thank you for bringing these beautiful concepts and stories to us. I'll say this is such a minor, tiny example. But after I heard your sermon on Sunday, we went on a family bike ride. And everyone else in my family wanted to hang out at the high school and play hide and go seek. And I was feeling really disappointed because I thought we were going to go on a bike ride. Go log miles. And I did have a moment where I thought, all right, here's a flow of fun, Elaine. Are you just going to say yes to joining in people you love who are enjoying themselves? Or are you going to really stay fixated on having it your way? And kind of to a point you made earlier, I could tell that saying yes to stepping into the flow of what was there was the right thing because I felt a sense of expansiveness and just a sense of relief. You know, so I love this message because it's applicable in the smallest ways and in the biggest, most consequential ways we can imagine. So thank you. Thank you for this conversation and for that, that image. I'm glad you had a good time. <laughs> I did. Well, thanks for listening to the Deeper Podcast. We get to have these amazing conversations because of this community being the supportive community it is. And we would love for you to be a part of that. So if you're listening and you're not connected to us, we'd love to hear from you. And reach out at DeeperPod, that's D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsuu.org. Love to connect and hear where you're listening from and what you love about the podcast, where you think we could go with it. Just be amazing to hear from you. And of course, if we're just so grateful for all the people who financially support the, our community so that we can do things like this and reach the hundreds of you that listen every week, which is kind of amazing. Until next week, thanks for listening, and I, and I hope you have a good one. <laughs>